Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. So how many of you remember these? Anybody remember those? Anybody sport one of those bad boys during the 90s around your wrist? The WWJD bracelets, what would Jesus do? It's a good question, but it's a little hard to figure out what a single Jewish male from the first century would do if you're a first-time mom wondering uh, if, we, if you should breastfeed or not breastfeed. Now, I'm not trying to be awkward or disrespectful. <laughs> My wife thought that was really funny, so she wrote that in, right? <laughs> But it makes me wonder if we could tweak the question so it's easier for us to envision the purpose of the question. Instead of what would Jesus do, maybe a better question is what would Jesus do if he were me? W-W-J-D-I-H-W-M. It might not fit really well on a bracelet. And you might have to have Elon Musk's brain to remember it. But if Jesus was me, a male, a female, a high school student, an adult, someone who's trying to figure out a difficult relationship or whether to take on a new role in a job, what would Jesus do if he were me? One of the clearest ways uh, we see the answer to this question is in this series we're in. First and foremost, through the Lenten season, we wanted to explore more fully who Jesus is through this phrase. It's the Son of Man came eating and drinking. There are three ways in the New Testament that com- that where it completes the phrase, the Son of Man came. The first one starts with a negative. It says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life, life as a ransom for many. And the second was, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So these first two show us what Jesus' mission was. But it's this third statement that shows us how Jesus does his mission. It's Jesus' strategy. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. So what would Jesus do if he were me or you? Well, eating and drinking would be a huge part of it, and that's good news because I love food and I can do that, right? And you probably can too. To clarify, though, for Jesus, meals were about so much more than food. During meals, he was able to reveal profound truths about who he is and his kingdom. But today, we want to focus on the simplicity and the power of what it meant for Jesus to eat meals with people, the great impact it has on us. Some theologians say that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, coming from a meal, or talking about food. Just to name a few, here's a few of the scriptures in Luke. He's Matthew, the tax collector, sinful, and, and the Pharisee and the sinful woman, feeds the 5,000, goes to a Pharisee while eating in a Pharisee, uh, goes off on a Pharisee while eating in a Pharisee's home, uh, talks about a great banquet. Then we go down further, we see Zacchaeus, and we see the Last Supper. Jesus is always talking about him, and his followers are writing. I mean, if you were a famous person, I was writing your biography, I don't think I would include so many details about meals. It just seems kind of unimportant, doesn't it? But the disciples do. So there's something really important for us in that. Jesus didn't just tweak. He radically overhauled the idea of hospitality around a meal. 
Meals were not about gaining favor or working your way up in society. His focused on, uh, he focused on eating meals with every person. He ate with those who were following him, and he ate meals with those who weren't following him, and even his enemies he ate meals with. We see the early church continuing Jesus' example. In Acts 2, it reads this. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to, to, give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved. So eating meals together was a core value of the church because it was a core practice of Jesus. And what was the result? God added to their number daily. See, there's a connection between eating and being together and people following Jesus. The practice of hospitality, the gospel spread at such a rapid pace from just a few followers to take over the majority of the Roman Empire in just 300 years. The Roman Empire was dominated by and shaped by and formed by Christianity after Jesus came on the scene. I mean, think about it. Does anyone worship Zeus anymore today? And yet Christianity is the most followed religion in the world today. And it was all about hospitality. This is a word that I think we need to revisit. Because for many of us, hospitality makes us think of Martha Stewart, Rachel Ray, Guy Fieri, and you could probably name several others. It makes us think of a home that's large enough and spacious enough and beautiful enough with a backyard that has a fire pit and lots of twinkling hanging lights making a perfect evening to sip and lounge outside in the often muggy mosquito-filled evenings of Ohio. That's not saying those things aren't wonderful, although I ask God about the mosquitoes oftentimes because they don't seem too wonderful to me. I mean, a good hammock and a comfy couch are great. But that's not what the Bible wants us to think of when we think of hospitality. Otherwise, those of us who live in a small apartment or our parents' basement who don't have a lot of money have no hope of ever practicing hospitality. There's a difference between biblical hospitality and being a great entertaining host. One of those core differences is entertaining is about exclusion, where biblical hospitality is about inclusion. Think about it. We invite when we want to entertain. We send out an invite to whoever wants to come. And in that, there's usually this kind of social hierarchy happen. We want these people, but we don't want these people. Whereas hospitality is all about inclusion. It's an open table, and we are all welcome. Entertaining is more about performing. You show off your perfect home, your amazing culinary skills, your favorite wine. I don't have amazing culinary skills, so I fail at hospitality. Hospitality is about serving and loving, though. Hospitality actually blurs the lines between host and guests. Jesus was so often, most of the time, he was the guest, and yet you see him almost acting as the host in that environment where he comes to the meal and he gives more than he receives, even. Entertaining has to be scheduled out weeks in advance, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. But hospitality is a way of life. It's a regular thing, and it can also be spontaneous. It's more of an open-door kind of way of living. Entertaining is about reciprocity. I have you over. 
and so you take your turn to have me over. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. But hospitality is living generously. You give it as a gift, and you don't need to receive anything back. Maybe this whole hospitality thing is more difficult for us in the U.S. because we live in what sociologists call a cold culture. Our American culture is more task-focused versus other countries that are more relationship-focused. And this shows up in us being more private, individualistic, and structured versus being more inclusive and welcoming. There's actually a Spanish phrase. We've all heard it, mi casa es tu casa, meaning my house is your house. And that's very different than the Western phrase, my, a man's home is his castle. Meaning you don't have the right to enter my home without my permission and don't forget the moat with the alligators in it around it, right? See, cultures affect our idea of relationship and hospitality. And what if we were to reimagine our homes, not as castles that we hide in or escape in, but as outposts, places to love others? At its core, hospitality is about providing space for God's spirit to move. We provide a place for people to feel loved and welcomed where God's spirit can be at work in their lives. Christians welcome the vulnerable, the poor, the needy, those who are disconnected from relationships, from family, from church. At its best, Christian hospitality helps cross social boundaries and it heals cultural divides. Hospitality is the practice of showing care and love by giving food and shelter and relationship and friendship. I mean, it can be hard, hard to define, but hospitality, when it's presence, present, it shows our hearts turning outward with our lives, our things, our space, and our money. Peter, the leader, leader of the early church, says it this way. He says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. That in itself is a major, beautiful verse, isn't it? And offer hospitality to one another Without grumbling. Now, I like how Peter has to say offer hospitality without grumbling because it's not always easy when someone breaks a dish or makes a mess in your home, right? The author of Hebrews says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. In our current Christian culture, do we look around this room and look at each other as a brother and a sister? It goes on to say, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. That's kind of cool, angels, right? And we see in Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus that along with being faithful in marriage and self-controlled and not getting drunk and not being a lover of money and being a good teacher, that hospitality is a job requirement for leaders in the church. Now, I've known pastors and leaders who have been removed for lack of integrity in handling finances, for not preaching the Bible, for having an affair, but I've never known someone to be removed for a lack of having a neighbor over for a meal in the last few months. I mean, come on, this guy is not that hospitable. Let's kick him out, right? <laughs> Yet being hospitable is one of the requirements of leadership. It's a command we are given throughout the Bible. Basically, we are commanded to carry on the practice of eating meals with others just like Jesus did. It's a central core of what it means to follow Jesus. As we share a meal, 
something happens. We grow closer together. Yet even before the pandemic, before the, in the last 30 years, saw a trend of 45% decrease in people practicing hospitality. Certainly, with the pandemic especially, we need to be certain that we're safe and we're protecting others. But this practice of hospitality needs to be reassessed. The great theologian Harry Nowen writes, If there is any concept worth restoring to its original depth and evocative potential, it is the concept of hospitality. It is one of the richest biblical terms that can deepen and broaden our insight in our relationships to our fellow human beings. A quest, we say it this way, relationships are the mission. It's the central value at Quest for the last 13 years. We believe God wants us to deepen our understanding of what that means. So we did a series on the Holy Spirit to focus on emphasizing our relationship with God, but we also need to focus on our human friendships. We want healthy relationships with fellow followers of Jesus to help us grow stronger and healthy, healthier. We want to reach out with healthy relationships to those who don't follow Jesus too because people often need to belong before they can believe. And there's this balance of relationships. When we focus on just being with other Christians, we tend to fall into this bunkering kind of Christianity and we end up getting stagnant. But if we only focus on building relationships with those outside the church, people who are not following Jesus, we end up missing the power and the beauty and the strength that healthy relationships within the church can and should be. See, the whole idea of hospitality, eating meals together, was the main way of evangelism for Jesus, the early church, even up through almost into the Middle Ages. So let's revisit what evangelism is because, frankly, I have some issues with this word evangelism, which I know it's kind of ironic because I'm a pastor, right? It feels uncomfortable because sometimes in our culture it's connected to someone standing out with a sign yelling, you need Jesus or you're going to hell, one of the two, right? For some of you, you've been hurt by the church, made to feel like you didn't measure up because of your choices, and so you end up pushing away and anything that smacks of organized, marketing-centered, religious evangelism. And I get that. You push it away for some good reasons. Evangelism reminds me of network marketing plans. You think you got invited over to your friend's house for a meal, and then out comes the presentation of how you can make $5,000 a month if you sell their trinket, right? It kind of feels like bait and switch. The motivation was not to have a meal to get to know me. Rather, how can it make more money off of me? Sometimes that's how evangelism comes across. People feel, I don't care about you. I just want to get you into my marketing plan of how to live life better. I worked in a church where the pastor of evangelism did a training class on evangelism. He used to try to teach people how to segue a conversation to a conversation about God. So he used to say things like this. He used to say, well, when you're at the gym on the treadmill, you can start a conversation about the weather. And then you can segue it to how amazing God is to create the clouds and how beautiful they are, and then you lead somebody to Christ. Now, I know some of you naturally can relationally do that, and I'm not saying that's wrong to do that. It's fine if you can naturally do it. I haven't figured out how to do that in a way that doesn't come across overly awkward and relationally unfriendly. And maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just my personality. 
But I think that's why I value the table and the meal so much. It's about an invitation to come to a meal or to a space where people are valued for who they are. All are welcome. And in culture, especially with all we've been through with the pandemic and politically and socially and racially, I think we have this tendency now to want to go inward, to just to keep our heads down and keep quiet about what we believe. Or we go a different route and we start editing or changing what it means to follow Jesus so it can be a little more culturally sensitive and less offensive to people. Or for some of us, we just become angry and we don't care what people think, which is certainly not a winsome way to win people to Christ. I think there's no better way to get to know people than over a meal. There's no better way to have a place of dialogue and discuss and debate and think and ask questions and care about someone than over a meal. We all have different gifts. Some of us are better at conversation than others, but having a meal opens space for others to be known and cared for in unique and individual ways. As followers of Jesus, how are we inviting others into our world to experience God? This practice of eating meals is so ordinary, so routine, that it's so often overlooked, and yet it's pregnant with so much potential. Just like the early church, we can change our community and shape our city by who we eat with. Rosaria Butterfield gives a great example of what it means to be invited to the table, to have meals with one another. So some of you know who she is, but some of you don't. Rosaria Butterfield was a a far-left lesbian feminist, a tenured professor at Syracuse University, whose specialty was postmodern critical theory. That's what her doctorate was in. She was writing a book at the time on how Bible-believing Christians are a threat to society. She despised Christians and their Jesus, thinking they were pointless and menacing. So one day she wrote an article for the local newspaper against a religious men's conference that was happening in the city. And she got fan mail and she got hate mail from Christians. But there was one piece of mail that didn't fit in either pile. One letter stood out from a Christian pastor asking some kind but direct questions. Things like, how do you arrive at your interpretation? How do you know you were right? His name was Ken, and he didn't argue with the article, but asked her to explain her presuppositions that undergirded her article. And he invited her to dinner. At first, she threw the letter away, but his questions made her question the integrity of her research she was doing. If she wasn't going to listen to someone who she was disagreeing with, then was her research really valid or was it just simply biased? So she actually took him up on the dinner of an invitation, thinking he was the enemy and he's everything I am against. And yet, a pen walking into the home, she experienced hospitality. She experienced love over and over again for the next few years, eating meals, meal after meal. She found Ken and his wife's faith and lives to be more compelling than anything she had experienced before. Rosaria listened to Ken pray in a way that was just natural, conversational, intimate, and vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of her. 
And she knew Ken followed the expectations of the Bible, but he was also so full of mercy. In fact, she described in this way, he was safe to be a friend with, even with all of her opposing, even hostile opinions and questions, he was still a safe friend. And she began inviting her friends along. Long story short, she came to faith in Jesus. She's now married to a Presbyterian pastor. She's, got foster, she's a foster parent, an incredible author, opens her home to all of her neighborhood on a regular basis. She's a popular speaker and writer. And yet, when it comes to apps and social media, she's just not on them. She's not on anything like Twitter or Instagram. The only app she uses is the Nextdoor app because it helps her know her neighbors better and shows the opportunities for Christian hospitality that she can have. Rosario experienced a strong sense of community in the LGBTQ plus community that in many ways does a better job of community than many churches. And yet with this pastor and his wife and their friends, she experienced a godly version of hospitality that had so much power, it radically changed and transformed her life. She's actually written an excellent book. It's called Rat, pardon me, Radically Ordinary Hospitality. Radically Ordinary Hospitality. It is a worthy read for all of us. See, we want people to experience healthy relationships. We know we're broken people and we still make mistakes, but we want to push back on the cold culture we live in. Wendy and I were also recently listening to a guy named Sam Alberry, a pastor and author who's in his 40s and identifies himself as having same-sex attraction. He thought because when he became a Christian that that would change his desires, and yet over the decades it didn't seem to change, and that lack of change for him has many times been painful and disappointing for him. He was sharing about listening to a friend who was talking with him about his young daughter and how they were dancing together. And his friend was going on about how precious of a season this was to be with his daughter and how much he looked forward to dancing with her on her wedding day. And Sam was both touched by his friend's love for his daughter, but it also kind of pushed on the grief he, he has for choosing a celibate life to stay single knowing he will not have children, knowing that he will never have that dance with a daughter of his own. He values his life. He loves his life. He values his calling. He's solid in his faith. And yet there are disappointments and losses still. Are we a church that can be there for one another in a way that people like him could find family among us? and others like him? Do we see the person who is without family and do we become family to them? Do we put our walls down and love well? There's so much to unpack here about how we do this incredible practice of hospitality. Some of us may need to strengthen our relationships within the church with followers of Jesus. Some of us may need to look or or really see for the first time among us those who are not connected and invite them into our friend and family circle. Some of us may need to strengthen our practice of reaching out to those who don't follow Jesus. I know time is an issue. Our schedules are packed. We have little margin in our life. But one thing we do have 
is we all eat two to three times a day. So grab someone for a quick breakfast or a lunch break with a coworker or invite a neighbor over for dinner or a holiday. You don't have to add anything to your calendar, just add people. I know some of us might think my place is too small, my furniture is too junky, my house is too messy. It's not about the place. That's confusing, entertaining, and hospitality. If you're worried about your place, just go outside to a park or include a friend who does have a home and help them and do it together. Or just be okay with a messy house. Frankly, most of us probably have messy houses and it might make us feel more comfortable to walk into somebody else's house that's messy, right? We're not alone. Another excuse is I don't know how to cook. There are some people here who know I'm really terrible at grilling. I burnt food so bad for some of you when you came over that it was inedible and we had to raid our refrigerator for leftovers in order to have a meal. But we can get better at those skills. That's what Google's for. Sometimes it doesn't work with me, but hey, I try. Some might think I'm an introvert. Some might think I'm a man, I don't cook, I don't decorate, I don't do hospitality, I don't do anything like that. Really? I don't know if Jesus really cooked much at all. I don't know if he was any good at it. Didn't matter. Didn't matter. He was amazing at hospitality. The point is you don't need a seminary degree to have a conversation. You don't need the perfect house or the perfect family. You just need a table and a heart to express care in a tangible way. A conversation doesn't have to have an ulterior motive. In fact, it shouldn't. You don't need an agenda. You don't do any bait and switch with people. Just be who you are. You are a follower of Jesus. It's a part of who you are. So just be focused on caring for the person in front of you and get to know them and let them actually get to know the real you as well. And watch what God will do. There's a theologian, Dr. Christine Pohl, had a great book out called Making Room. It gives us some key markers that make a home conducive to hospitality. And she says it's, it's just these things. It's, is it comfortable? Is it lived in? Well, she doesn't want a museum. It's got to be something you can live in. Is it a place where people are flourishing? It's not necessarily beautifully decorated, but it's well cared for. Is your home a place of safety and sanctuary where people can retreat from the anxiety of the world? It's not frenetic and stressful, but you walk in and you feel a slower pace and a sense of peace. And it's a place where life is celebrated and the discipline of celebration has become a habit of the heart and a habit of your family. And yet it's also a place where pain and disappointment and sadness of life are welcomed. And you can talk about it freely. Some questions to think about as we walk this out. You may take a screenshot of these if you want. How would your life be different if hospitality were a lifestyle? What steps could you take to move in that direction? For some of you, you're already doing this. How might you take this to the next level and make it just a little bit better? Or here's a question. 
Does the idea of hospitality make your mind race with anxiety? Then ask yourself, why might that be? What's behind that anxiety? Is it really they need need to be there? Does God want to speak to that anxiety? Is there something your small group and your community of friends can do to help ease that anxiety? And a final question, how can you nurture your children to learn hospitality? So again, let's just pause for a moment for each of us to individually ask this question. What are you saying to me, Holy Spirit? Just pause and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you right now. I'd encourage you to invite the Holy Spirit to bring a name or a face to mind that you could share some time or a meal with in the next week or two. So just think of the people in your life, friends, family, coworkers, neighbors. Who do you think Jesus would like to have a meal with? Maybe it's someone who doesn't have much money. Maybe it's someone who doesn't go to church, someone who doesn't believe in Jesus. Maybe it's someone who's lonely. Maybe it's someone who's awkward socially, who doesn't have a friend. Maybe it's someone new to the area. Who would Jesus eat with in your sphere of relationships? Let me speak to you for a moment. If you're not sure of your faith and you're listening here or online, if you have felt shut out by the church, if you don't feel like you have a family or community, here's what I want you to know. Jesus wants you. He wants you at the table with him. You are wanted. You are welcomed. And we want you to experience that kind of relationship with us as well. Would you stand with me as we pray? We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.